Attention world. If you can make it to America, then come see us. We are going out on the road for SYSK Live again, and we are going to start the whole thing off in Chicago on July 24th. That's right. And if you can't make it to America, maybe make it to Canada, because we're going to be in Toronto on the next night, Mm -hmm. the Danforth Music Hall. Then in August, we're going to do a couple of dates at the Wilbur in Boston Mm -hmm. on October 29th in Portland, Maine's lovely state theater on August 30th. Yep. And then we're going to be heading down to Florida. We're going to be at Plaza Live on October 9th. And then the next night, we're going to be in New Orleans at the Civic Theater. That's right. And then we're going to round it out in Brooklyn, October 23, 24, and 25 at the Bell House. Yep. So come see us. You can get tickets and info at SYSKLive.com. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry Jerome Roland over there, sitting on Frank the Chair, who's not very happy about that, but still, this is Stuff You Should Know. I thought Jerry's entrance today was unique. Oh, yeah? Yeah, man. When they... When, uh... Matt and uh, Tyler brought her in, rolled up in a carpet, <laughs> right? her out on the studio floor. Yes. And she said, fire me. <laughs> we said, Jerry, we don't have that kind of power. And she just, it was amazing. It was almost like playing the whole thing in reverse. She rolled herself back up in the carpet in one swift motion. That's right. And if you are a Cleopatraite, then uh, you got a little chuckle out of that joke. Mm-hmm. If not, you're probably thinking that we're on drugs or something. Yeah, I guess you could probably think both. But um, neither is true. What is true is that you're about to be confused for the next 45 to 55 minutes. (laughs) That's a great setup, man. We're going to confuse everybody. Yeah, boy, this this is is dense. uh, And there are a lot, a lot, a lot of names with numbers that follow in uh, in triumvirates. Not even regular numbers, numbers that are actually letters. Yeah, Roman style. Yeah. So here we go. This is going to be good, Chuck. Oh, by the way, if you uh, live in Chicago or Toronto or Boston <laughs> or Portland, Maine or yeah. Orlando, Florida or New Orleans or Brooklyn, New York, okay, you should go to SYSKLive.com yeah. and check out our tour dates. We're going to those cities and you can buy tickets at SYSKLive.com and get information about things like, is it a 21 and up show? Mm-hmm. I don't think any of them are. Uh, what time are doors? Probably seven, but you better check. That kind of stuff, you can go find that info by visiting SYSK Live and then following the hyperlinks out to other websites on the internet. That's right. If you've never seen us live, come on out. It's a lot of fun. And if you have, just come on back and get a second helping of us. Yep. A a second heap and helping of our hospitality. Now on to Cleopatra. (laughs) Good call, by the way. Good call for, for saying all that. Great. So Cleopatra, she's one of those historical figures that everybody knows about, but if you stop and ask yourself, what do you know about her? You realize you know next to nothing about her. You know, she was amazingly beautiful. She um, looked like Liz Taylor. Um, She she loved Julius Caesar and maybe Mark Anthony, too. And wait a minute, how did she love both? What's going on here? You just realize you get confused pretty quickly. Was she a feminist icon? Was she actually just kind of a, um, uh, a, 
a wily woman who used sexuality to get what she wants. Who knows? The problem is this. She's one of those historical figures that we know very little about because historians know very little about her. Like, she was not extensively documented. As famous as she is, she was not extensively documented by her own people, the Egyptians. Yeah, which is a little strange because she was beloved by the Egyptians. From what we can tell, yeah. From what we can tell. But most of the information we have is very Mm -hmm. Greco-Roman, especially this Plutarch chump. Well, Plutarch, actually, he was the first to to show any sympathy whatsoever. Yeah. The guys who came a little before him, they were they were just all-out meanies because the, the Romans did not like um, Cleopatra in yeah. general. They found her, um, at the very least, problematic in that she kept luring away some of their favorite sons uh-huh. and then usually to the detriment of Rome or... Symbolically, the idea, if she was a great ruler, as as she seems to have been, at least above average, if not like <laughs> one of the better better rulers around, if there was this woman who was, you know, kind of in the public eye and basically in ancient old-timey Roman news <clears throat> all the time, and she was a female who was really good at ruling, that was a threat to Rome's established patriarchy. That wasn't supposed to be able to happen. And so Rome came up with all of these popular ideas for why she was able to do that. And usually it came down to sex and or magic. Um, And that that was how Cleopatra got through. And so over the last couple thousand years, um, it's kind of... Our idea, our image of Cleopatra has kind of come up from this this brew uh, seen through Roman eyes. And it's only very recent that people have really kind of started to dig in and try to examine her academically and, and with what, you know, small, meager, firsthand sources and accounts exist. Yeah, I mean, she ruled ancient Egypt. Uh, she was the last pharaoh. Um, she was mm-hmm. the first woman. Uh, sovereign to rule all by herself for more than a decade, which was quite an accomplishment. Oh, yeah. And um, how she got there is a very long and sort of convoluted story. Yeah, when you think of Egypt, Chuck, we think of like pharaohs and Isis and Osiris and all of that. Sure. Um, And we think of Cleopatra, too. But Cleopatra was different. She was different from all the pharaohs that came before her. She was um, different from most of the pharaohs that came before her in that she came from a family line that had been established only about 350 years before when Alexander the Great's general Ptolemy um, said, Alexander died, we're dividing up his kingdom, I'm taking Egypt. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, Egyptians, you know how you had this line of pharaohs that ruled the country? Well, you got a new one, and it's me and my descendants. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not Egyptian. I'm actually Macedonian, but I'm in charge here, and I'm naming myself um, Ptolemy the First uh, Suter. I believe it's S-U-T-O-R, which means savior of Egypt. And he established the Ptolemaic line. And from that point on, um, all of the People who ruled as pharaohs over Egypt came from Ptolemy um, and his his um, children. Yeah, I mean, that was a few hundred years worth a, a pretty good run there. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty good run, but you don't think of that. Like, you know, you think of uh, Cleopatra as a pharaoh like any other pharaoh. She wasn't. She was different. She was probably of Macedonian descent because she was descended from Ptolemy. But they also are not sure 
Was she Egyptian too, like ethnic Egyptian? Right. Um, some people believe that she was sub-Saharan African descent. Um, it's just totally up in the air of exactly what her ethnicity was, but she was definitely not descended from the pharaohs before. But in establishing this line, Ptolemy said, well, I get that you guys are really big into the idea that that kings or pharaohs and queens are divine. So we're going to say that that applies to my line too. And what's this incest you guys are into? We'll give that a try too. <laughs> In a big and so way. The, the Ptolemaic line carried on those customs as well. Yeah, so the, the Ptolemies, 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 Whatever you want to say, man. Um, they they were <laughs> Greek speakers and observed Greek customs, mm-hmm. um, which if you're living in Egypt, it seems like a bit of a contradiction because people in Egypt weren't Greek. And that kind of caused a separation. Um, Cleopatra was uh, – was Cleopatra? <laughs> Is that what I said? Yes. Cleopatra was— It sounds like—Cleopatra <laughs> sounds like a new comedy coming this fall on NBC. It totally does. Oh, boy. Um, who rules like her local, you know, uh, Brooklyn apartment building or something? <laughs> <laughs> and she comes in, how they introduce her as a character is she comes in rolled up in a carpet. Sure. In the pilot. That she made herself. Man, this thing writes itself. So Cleopatra distinguished herself— by coming in, and we'll get to all this in more detail, but she was popular in Egypt because she came in and she was like, hey, what do you need, Egypt? I'm going to speak your languages. Right. I'm going to I'm gonna be patriotic for Egypt, and I'm going to speak a lot of languages because I'm super smart. And I don't – in fact, I speak so many languages. When I go to meet with other uh, leaders of other countries and, and kingdoms, <laughs> I'm not even going to need my translators and I'm not even going to need my advisors around. I can make my own decisions because I'm speaking directly to them in their native tongue. Egyptians love that, but the, her officials and her tra- – well, I guess her translators didn't really have a say. But her officials were like, uh, this is upsetting. Well, yeah, because it diminished their power. They said, well, you don't – you know, you're not consulting with us before you start speaking to these other foreign powers, these other leaders – and she's like, well, I don't need to. I speak their language. I can ask them and decide for myself whether they're telling the truth or what they actually need or what they what they should get. Um, so, yeah, the, just the ascension of Cleopatra was different two ways. It diminished the power of the officials that had been established by the time her father died and left the place to her. And she was known as basically a very patriotic pharaoh and that she spoke Egyptian and followed Egyptian customs way more than any of the the Ptolemies before her had. So that was, she was different in that respect, big time, right out of the gate. Yeah, so she assumed uh, the throne uh, as a, I guess, even for the time, a young woman of 18 years old, Mm -hmm. uh, along with her her bratty little 10-year-old brother, Ptolemy 13, (laughs) that guy. Uh, there was a tradition there that basically said, if you're a woman, you need a male consort to rule. Um, so, And by guys, the way, marry him. <laughs> say what? And by the way, marry him. Yeah, like technically you have to get ceremonially, uh, ceremonially married. But, you know, that's kind of where it ends. Unless you don't want it to end there. Because we're pretty <laughs> liberal on that front. Sure. <laughs> uh, but the, the kingdom of Egypt that she inherited was um, not a healthy one. Um, it had floods and famine. It had a bad economy. Mm-hmm. And it was really up to her to forge alliances um, with other places and other men uh, in power to to make Egypt what she thought it could be, starting with Julius Caesar. Yeah. So at the time – so 
her father had kind of mortgaged Egypt over to Rome to help bail the economy out because things are, it, it was hard times even before Cleopatra rose to power, and that's what she inherited. Um, so Rome already had a pretty big interest in Egypt. Egypt was a client state of Rome. Yeah. Rather than Rome <clears throat> officially ruling Egypt and saying, like, we install the governor all that stuff, they, they said, you can exist and we're going to trade with you. But basically, if we tell you to do something, you do it. Yeah. And that was kind of the, the relationship between Rome and Egypt. So it makes sense that she would say, let me, let me get even more um, cozy cozy with Rome, <laughs> but who's in power? That was a really big question at the time because when she rose to power— as co-ruler with her little brother, who, by the way, she basically just rode out of power immediately. Oh, yeah. Um, she, she That was not an easy question to answer because at the time, Rome was racked by civil wars. And specifically, there was a triumvirate, a, a kind of a shaky power-sharing agreement between Julius Caesar, um, Pompey, and uh, Crassus, I believe, right? That's right. Uh, and that is uh, Pompey... Is that how you pronounce it? We can't say Pompeii because that'll get confusing. Yeah, it's Pomp. I always said Pompey. It sounds so cute. Pom- but, but he was a murderous general. Give me a little Pompey. All right. Stick that knife in somebody. <laughs> um, and also, by the way, later on, Octavian, when did he become Augustus? <clears throat> oh, I, that's the big finish, man. <laughs> okay. We'll get to that eventually. <laughs> Spoiler. Yeah. Because uh, that got a little confusing, too. All these different names. Uh, yes, but that you are correct. Octavian is Augustus. They're one and the same. Right. So, uh, and aren't they both Joaquin Phoenix? <laughs> uh, the Roman Senate was on the side of Pompey. Mm-hmm. So Julius Caesar, um, like you said, th- there was this 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 sort of deal that they had going on was a, a really kind of um, unsteady detente between civil wars. Mm-hmm. And the Roman Senate supported Pompey and said, Caesar, you got to give up your army, man. He said, I'm not doing it. In fact, not only that, but I'm coming to Italy, guys. He leads his, his people into Italy. Across and, the Rubicon. Yeah, and declares war against Pompey and his forces. And he wins. He eventually won, quite, quite surprisingly, because Pompey, again, had that Senate um, backing, and so he had the senatorial forces, which vastly outnumbered Caesar's forces, but they were just superior forces, and Caesar uh, eventually defeated Pompey. Well, Pompey, um, being closely aligned with Egypt, fled to Egypt, yeah. which is pretty understandable. Um, you can also understand why he would have fled to Egypt. He was the uh, state-designated uh, guardian of Ptolemy XII's kids, which was Cleopatra and Ptolemy the 13th, among others. Here we go. So, so he went and thought, <laughs> okay, this will be great. I'll just sit around and eat grapes for the rest of my days in Egypt. It's not a bad forced retirement. Sure, it was a nice place. But when he got there, he found that Cleopatra and her sister Arsinoe... Arsinoe had, Hall. ...had been, <laughs> had been forced into exile, and that Pompey the 13th was was in... or not, I'm sorry, Ptolemy the 13th. Yeah. Like, it's not confusing <laughs> enough already. Um was in power. This little boy king, boy pharaoh, was in power. Yeah. And and Ptolemy thought, Caesar just won. His his vanquished enemy just showed up at my doorstep. I'm going to get killed for harboring this guy. So I'm going to have Pompey killed. And he did. He had Pompey 
killed and decapitated in an effort to curry favor with Caesar. Didn't work, though. No, it did not work because Caesar said, hey, 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 I was going to pardon that guy, you moron, (laughs) and, and like, become beloved to the Roman citizens, and you just cut his head off. I'm coming for you. And so Caesar um, crossed into Egypt to invade and basically depose uh, Ptolemy the 13th. That's right. So he gets to Egypt now. Caesar does. He declares martial law and basically moves in to the royal palace and is like, this is my place now. (laughs) This is my place. And so Cleopatra at this point is like, all right, here's the deal. I need Caesar's support here if I'm going to get back on that throne. Right. Um, So I need to curry favor with him. And this is the big carpet scene that we're talking about. And every sort of uh, pop culture – Retelling of Cleopatra's story, so which means this is probably true. Cleopatra gets back in there by sneaking in, mm-hmm. uh, skirting the enemy lines and the Roman barricades, coming in and under the under the dead of night, rolled up in a carpet, and is then presented to Caesar, unrolled, and he's like. That was fantastic. <laughs> he just stands up and claps. He's like, like Bravo. Put her, roll her back up there and do it again. I've right. never seen anything like it. Uh, she begged Caesar for aid, and it, it really did apparently win him over. And he was like, I like the, I like the cut of her jib. Right. So they um, became uh, friends with benefits pretty quickly <laughs> out of the gate. Um, but but from from every account of this— it was, and again, it was either a uh, carpet, she was rolled up in a carpet or in like a, um, some sort of bag like that you'd carry bedding, clo- like bed clothes in or whatever. Um, it, 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 she got Caesar on her side like almost immediately. And so all of a sudden, Cleopatra, who had been forced out of rule by Ptolemy the 13th, was now uh, aligned with the guy who had just invaded Egypt and taken over and declared martial law, which was bad news for Ptolemy. And it was also bad news for Arsinoe, who had who had left. She had come back with Cleopatra and then left to go have Ptolemy proclaim her queen of Egypt. Um, so she traded sides. And so Cleopatra said, hey, Julius, just a couple of quick favors. Uh, I want to get rid of Ptolemy the 13th. I also, who actually, they found out later that he drowned fleeing. He drowned in the Nile. So Ptolemy the 13th is taken care of. The only person left out of all, I think, five or six kids in Cleopatra's family, there's one left, Arsinoe, her younger sister. She's like, I can't have her running around. She's already shown that she's duplicitous. Get rid of her. So Caesar, um, to kind of show off that he has taken over Egypt, parades Arsinoe through the town, through, uh, I suppose, Alexandria, in chains, showing that he's vanquished her. Um, and he, to his surprise, found that this aroused the sympathy of the, the people living in the town. And so he ends up sparing Arsinoe's life, which will come back into play later. And he, he vanquishes her in exile to the temple of Artemis at Ephesus, which we talked about in the, the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World episode. But so just put a pin in that, Chuck, that... Arsinoe is alive. She just lives in Turkey in exile now. That's right. And she is the only person who can challenge Cleopatra's claim to the Egyptian throne. All right, let's take a break. Okay. Let's get our ducks in a row. All right. We'll come back and talk more about that carpet trick after this. 
Okay, so Ptolemy's dead. Dead. L- little brother's dead. Sister is vanquished. Yes. Uh, Caesar at this point um, needs to, he needs money. He needs to fund his p- return to Rome mm-hmm. uh, and return to power. And Cleopatra's dad uh, incurred a lot of debts uh, via Egypt. And he's like, hey, listen, I got to like get this money back. And he said, you're pretty cool. That carpet trick was <laughs> awesome. Just gangbusters. <laughs> gangbusters. So I need uh, – it's fine. You can rule Egypt. The two of us here, we're great. We have the same – you know, I feel like we're on the same level, which was a very big deal to Mm -hmm. – for someone like Julius Caesar to say that about a female ruler. And he stayed there for a while, and they had a kid. His name was Ptolemy Caesar. Um, He was, you know, later fully acknowledged from Caesar that he was his child, but it was kind of like the love child thing. Right. He he said, yeah, that's my kid, and he's great, good-looking kid, but he's not my no. official heir. <laughs> no, but uh, his name, like I said, was Ptolemy Caesar. They called him uh, Caesarion or Little Caesar <laughs> or Pizza Pizza. Right. <laughs> I'm sure you saw that coming from a mile away. If you hadn't said it, I would have said it myself. <laughs> so all of a sudden, uh, Cleopatra is there. Um, she's really sort of solidified her position on every front. Right, right. So she's got the backing of Julius Caesar, who's named himself dictator for life by this time. She got uh, little brother out of the way and she, sister out of the way for now. And and this is this is it's really tough to overstate this. She has born an heir. She's the only. She's the only. She's the pharaoh. She's the ruler of Egypt, and she's now born an heir, a male heir who is not only a male heir and going to be the next pharaoh, but he is the blood descendant of Julius Caesar himself. Yeah. So Egypt is real happy with Cleopatra at this moment. Rome is not so happy, but it doesn't matter because Caesar's like the top dog in charge of everything. And things are going well for a little while. Um, so much so that Caesar or that um, uh, Cleopatra and little Caesar go visit <laughs> big Caesar in Rome for a little while and set up household right across the river from Caesar's house. Yeah. And at Caesar's house, if you had happened to, to, to go across the way and um, peek in one of the windows, you'd find, oh, Caesar has another family. He's got a wife and kids, and um, they're not super happy with him for having uh, run around on them and had another kid with Cleopatra. But what are you going to do? She's the ruler of Egypt. And by the way, she's spending the summer across the river from us. That's right. So, as a ruler, things are going pretty great for Cleopatra. Um, mm-hmm. Like I mentioned earlier, they really liked her. Uh, she was she related to the the people. They related to her. Um, like you said, she lived the Egyptian lifestyle. She, whenever she had portraits drawn of herself, she was like, "Do the Egyptian thing, right?" Because it's great, and the people will love it. <laughs> um, she was identified uh, on a papyrus in 35 BC as she who loves her country. Yeah, Philopater in Greek, she who loves her country. That's right. Uh, but she was a, a fully Egyptian pharaoh and very patriotic, and that just further like cemented her position as uh, someone beloved by the Egyptians. And it's at this point that it's like, it's pretty obvious that it's a real shame that you didn't get any writings from the Egyptians, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, the, there was, there were some... Busts, I believe, of her possibly um, that may have been lost. There was a coin that turned up, but for the most part, like they didn't really document her rule. Which again, it's really, really weird. Um, but there are some like 
like it was a massive bureaucracy that she operated. It was not just Egypt, but it was a huge chunk of uh, northeast Africa and southwest Mediterranean um, that she ruled over. Um, and, you know, being in league with Caesar definitely didn't hurt things. So the empire kept expanding. She, but on her own, this is the thing. Like, it's not lost on us, everybody who's listening, that we're telling this story through the fact that Caesar is a huge part of her life or that Rome, whatever Rome's doing. Um, this is the, the documentary evidence we have. But there's also other evidence too, very sparse evidence, but there is evidence that like with or without Caesar, like she, she was afforded like a, a bigger opportunity by being in league with Caesar, but she took that and ran with it on her own without the, the direct aid of Caesar. So she expanded her empire. She started trading to further and further areas like Arabia. There's potential evidence that they were trading as far away as India at the time. Um, and she was really good from what we could tell at figuring out what somebody needed and making them dependent on her for it. Um, one of the ways she would do that was, um, like, she identified people who could help her, too. Like, later on, after Caesar died, there would be a, a, a general um, who was really important. He was stationed in Egypt, so it, would, it was really good to, for her to be on good terms with him. So she basically gave him a tax break that said, hey, you can bring in um, 5,000 amphora of wine, from Rome every year, tax-free. You can export 10,000 um, bags of wheat tax-free. That must have been an enormous amount of money that, that this guy saved. And the way that she would do this in her own style was found later on. So on this royal decree saying that this is the case, in her handwriting, she wrote um, ginestoi, which is Greek for make it so. And they found this. There's like a document out there that has Cleopatra's handwriting on it. Um, but it was basically to, to, to make sure that this guy felt taken care of so he would remain her ally. And that's how she operated. She knew very clearly how to um, make people like her or how to make them dependent on her. And then under that, she signed her name <laughs> and then put TCB with a lightning bolt through it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what's cool is that document they found it accidentally. It was used as lining for a sarcophagus that a mummy was found in. And somehow they found this thing and figured out this is Cleopatra's handwriting. Amazing. It is pretty amazing to have that 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 relic, you know, exist in the world still. So later on, uh, 46 BCE, Caesar um, returned to Rome. And then Cleopatra, like you said, went there at some point to visit, and this mm -hmm. is where this is where the big acknowledgement that little Caesar was was his son, but not the heir. This right. is where that finally happened. Yeah. Um, and Caesar was murdered very famously. I don't know if you people have heard about that, but he was stabbed <laughs> on in your the back, birthday. quite literally. Yeah. Uh, on my birthday, uh, Cleopatra goes back to Egypt. Um, Ptolemy fourteen dies uh, soon after this, and that means little Caesar is all of a sudden co-regent with mommy as Ptolemy 25. I'm sorry, 15. Right, Ptolemy 15, right? So now little Caesar is officially the heir. I think by this time he was like 13 or 16 or something like that. He was, he was getting up there in years. No, I'm sorry, that was later on. So yeah, he was a little kid still. He was three. 
Oh, he was three. Okay. So, um, after Caesar dies, like everything's kind of up in the air. This is a pretty big surprise to everybody. But Caesar had boys, right? He had people that loved him. One of which was Octavian, who was his grandnephew, I think, who Caesar allegedly adopted. Um, there was also another one named Mark Antony, who was Caesar's kind of right-hand man. Um, and they said, hey, you know what? This is not cool. We're going to get Brutus and Cassius, who orchestrated this assassination. And another civil war erupted in Rome. Yeah, and we can't leave out Lepidus because this was the official second triumvirate. Okay, you're right. Uh, and you can't be a triumvirate without Lepidus. No. Got to have that third guy in there. It's just a duumvirate. No one likes those. <laughs> That's right. So, 42 BC, there was the Battle of Philippi, uh, and the forces of Mark Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius. Yeah. And then that means Mark Antony can emerge as ruler of the East, uh, which included Egypt, very importantly, and Octavian held the West on the West side. <laughs> right. But both of them said, we need the support of Egypt, which is a very big deal. Um Cleopatra basically, you know, was summoned by Mark Antony, and she was like, you know what, uh, summoned to Sicily, and she was like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm Cleopatra, I'm going to come when I want to come. Right. Which was sort of a bold move at the time. Yeah, yeah, because he was basically accusing her of potentially having given aid to Brutus um, and Cassius during the Civil War, and she... And she's saying, not only am I not even responding to the allegation, I'm not even going to show up to talk to you until I want to. But when she does show up, apparently she made another very grand entrance. And this one was um, memorialized by William Shakespeare in the play um, uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, appropriately. <laughs> um, and she shows up in this this town um, called Tarsus in modern-day Turkey. Um on a barge, a royal barge. And these barges, by the way, dude, these are like, this is not what you think of as like a barge, you know? I guess it is kind of what you think of as a barge, but larger and more opulent. How about that? Yeah, I mean, it was, she came in to make a statement. Right. Uh, there were, she was dressed as Aphrodite. There were purple purple sails. There were lutes playing. She basically had a band. Hmm. Um, she was laying on a couch on clouds of incense. Mm -hmm. And Mark Antony... Just like Julius Caesar was like, whoa, wow, we really wow, know how to make whoa. an entrance. Yeah. Uh, and he said, you know what? Uh, I'd like to dine with you. Um, can you come here and dine with me? And she said, no, why don't you come <laughs> up on this ship and you dine with me? He very famously said, can you come here and dine with me? And he did get aboard that <laughs> ship and he did dine with her. And he was very much taken with her. Yeah. Um, and she, you know... Uh, Ultimately, I think she very much loved him in the end, but she, early on at the very least, knew what she needed from him. Yeah, because again, this guy's the the Roman ruler of Egypt, basically, and her job is to make it so Rome doesn't ever officially rule Egypt. So at the very least, it stays at arm's length enough so Egypt can, can be a client state, but she also needs to make sure that she doesn't go to war with them because they would probably crush Egypt. So she's dancing this real fine line, and again, just like with Caesar, she basically said, hey, guy— I like the I like the cut of your jib. Let's figure out an alliance. 
and let's also do it a lot too. And yeah. with it's like you said though, it's like you said that like whether whether it was because she needed something from him and he also was very much dazzled by her wealth as well or her display of wealth, but there there does seem to have been unless it's just totally fabricated, a real love story between the two of them. Yeah, I mean they had three kids together. Right. Uh she goes back to Egypt and he's not too far behind at this point. Um, he's like, all right, I got to, I got to get over there to Egypt mm-hmm. and see my lady. Um, and his wife Fulvia said, uh, "Wait a minute, I'm your lady, and we have kids together." And he says, "Yeah, but you know what? I'm going to go over there anyway because you know that's just kind of how things worked back then." Sure, this is before texts. That's right. Uh, he spent the winter of forty forty one there in Alexandria. Um, they were getting along famously. They formed a drinking group called the. Uh, inimitable livers, uh, yeah. where they had these big, huge parties and feasts. And this is one of the very famous legends of Cleopatra came about uh, when she took a pearl and dissolved it. It was a very expensive pearl valued at 10 million simoleons, <laughs> uh, which was enough to maintain 10,000 Roman soldiers for a full year. That's just, a lot of dough. That's a lot of dough. And just to prove her wealth, she dissolves this thing in a cup of vinegar and drinks it. And Mark Antony was like, Oh my gosh, this lady. Sproing. Amazing. Did you see what she just did? She just drank a pearl. She just wasted so much money. I'm so <laughs> turned on right now. So uh, they have twins, uh, Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the boom time for Cleopatra and Egypt. She's yeah. really solidified her stronghold and... Um, Everything is sort of going her way at this point. Yeah, in part because Mark Anthony said, I got to get back to Rome. I'd like to show up really victorious. You know, one of those barges you've got? I'd love to have one of those. I need some money from you. And with Caesar before, again, um, uh, Cleopatra's father, Ptolemy XII, had kind of lev- or mortgaged uh, Egypt to Rome. This had not happened. E- Egypt had grown, had kind of gotten out of that economic funk when Cleopatra had um, had taken over, and she had started to steer it even better or in better directions. So now this was just straight up Mark Anthony um, borrowing from Egypt, which helped put him in her pocket. And she said, "I would like to expand my empire." He said, "Done." So he gave to Cleopatra a lot of Roman holdings that Egypt had formerly held, and the empire just expanded by a pretty decent proportion overnight, just with the, the sweep of Mark Antony's hand in exchange for her setting him up to go back to, to Roman style, which he did. All right, so let's take a break. Okay. And uh, we're going to come back and talk about uh, the cracks that start to form right after this. So, Chuck, no good time can go on forever, it turns out. And Cleopatra's story definitely brings that one home, too. That's right. So... <laughs> you didn't like that setup? No, I thought it was great. It was like I put the the ball on the, the orange cone and it just kind of fell over. <laughs> so, Mark Antony uh, does a very controversial thing. Um, he declares little Caesar uh, rightful heir rather than Octavian. 
Right, to, to Julius Caesar. That's correct. And he awarded land to each of his children with Cleopatra. Uh, we mentioned the twins. We did not mention Ptolemy uh, Philadelphos, uh, who's the third kid. Mm-hmm. And this really upset Octavian, um, as it probably should. So he knew that, that the Roman people were kind of sick of hearing about Cleopatra. Uh, they were sick of hearing about uh, all of these wars uh, going on that these generals are carrying out. And he knew that the he knew that it was sort of the perfect time to mount a propaganda campaign to turn everyone against them. Yeah, because the Romans were like had another civil war between two powerful generals that are co-ruling. Come on, and Octavian had the really good idea of saying, "Okay, okay, I can't turn everybody against Mark Antony directly." But I can turn them against Cleopatra really easily. So I'll just start this propaganda campaign that says um, Cleopatra is a threat to Rome. She has using her her wiles or her her magic or whatever um, convinced Mark Antony to give up chunks of Rome and to declare her son Caesar's rightful heir. We got to get rid of Cleopatra. Poor Mark Antony is just her her mesmerized puppet, basically. So he achieves the same end, turning people on Mark Antony, but rather than doing it directly, he uses uh, Cleopatra and their kind of suspicion of her being a foreign temptress as um, as, as the, the crux through which he does it. Yeah, and, you know, some of this was, uh, some of this stuff was true. Some of it was made up. Um, uh, Octavian said, hey, listen, I've got his will. Yeah. And... You know what he's done? He's turned over Roman possessions to Cleopatra. And you know what? He's going to make Alexandria in Egypt the capital of Rome. You can just hear the gasp. Oh, yeah. And it was a big, big deal. So in 32 BC, the Roman Senate got involved. Uh, They stripped Mark Anthony of his titles. um, And Octavian says, all right, Cleopatra, it's time for us to go at it. Uh, We're going to war. Your charms will not work on me. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, they had not worked. Um, and I think Cleopatra knew this all along. So this all fed into the narrative that Cleopatra was uh, from Egypt and uh, from a different culture that they don't uh, align with. Um, she lives there, and she's super wealthy, and she's doing these dealings with the Far East and India. And at the time, those places were, uh, I guess, in Rome, seen as just very sort of uh, controversial and weird, and they thought they practiced uh, in the occult and alchemy and all these strange things, and she's doing business right. with them, and she's she's a bad, bad lady. Right, right. So, yeah, it was just foreign and weird is basically how Rome viewed Egypt, right? So the idea that that was going to be their new seat of power did not sit very well with them. Whether that was true or not, I don't know, but it worked. It got, it got the um, Roman Senate and the people turned against Mark Antony, so much so that Octavian was able to launch an assault on Egypt and on Cleopatra and Mark Antony, which was successful, right? And they, it, it, this article makes it kind of sound like it happened almost overnight. I think it took place over the course of a year or so between when the when Rome turned on Mark Antony and when uh, Octavian was at Egypt's door. Um, but at some point, uh, Mark Antony, during the siege, during this, this war um, between Egypt and, and Rome, which is something Cleopatra had avoided the whole time, basically her whole reign was about preventing this from happening, um, Mark Antony decided that he had, he had um, lost his place 
of honor in the world and that he should take his own life. He also, according to legend, heard that Cleopatra had taken her life. And so in response and because he had lost his place of honor, he um, killed himself basically through harikuri, which is like stabbing yourself with your sword, disemboweling yourself. That's what he did with his own sword. And, um, and, and, I was at death's door, I guess, when he heard, oh, wait, wait, that was just a rumor. Cleopatra didn't actually kill herself. Yeah, and supposedly, if you believe the, the legend, uh, Octavian did allow him uh, to, to be brought to Cleopatra, uh, and he died in her arms, and she tore at her clothes and, and smeared uh, his blood all over her face and shrieked out, uh, he is my master and husband and commander. Um, and that's if you believe the legend, of course. Right. Yeah. Uh, it sounds a little trumped up to me, but you never know. <laughs> um, so Octavian at this point is in a pretty good position. Um, he says he, he's got it right where he wants her, and he knows it, and she knows it. And he said, listen, I want you um, to come back to Rome, and you're going to be a captive, and I'm going to kind of parade you through the streets as a symbol of our victory, mm-hmm. and she knew that this would be like just the, the great humiliation of her life and, and career. So she said, all right, I need a little time to prepare myself, um, which, you know, the writing's on the wall here that she is going to die a noble death by taking her own life. Uh, but she didn't do it right away. Uh, it took about a week um, because she was still trying to, still trying to save things uh, up until the very end, which is pretty remarkable. So on August 12, 30 B.C., uh, Antony is buried. Um, Cleopatra meets with Octavian. She closes herself in a chamber with uh, two of her servants. And um, we're not exactly sure how she got it. depends on the legend that you, that you choose to believe. But she got poisoned right. and committed suicide along with her servants. Uh, and apparently, yeah. and this is from Plutarch's records, um, one of the Roman officers burst in as this was happening and yelled, "A fine deed, this!" And one of the uh, one of the servants was basically like, "Yeah, it is a fine thing because she went out on her own terms, jerk." Yeah, basically, that's a, I guess paraphrasing. Sure, she said, "Nothing could be finer for this lady, the descendant of so many kings." Right, that was Charmian, and the other uh, servant was Iris, I R A S, and like you said, like they're not quite sure how she got that poison. And so a legend grew up that she had used a, an asp, a cobra, and it allowed it to bite her so that she could die. But if, if you kind of put two and two together, supposedly um, she sent a note to uh, Octavian to stall for time. But was he figured out what she was doing fast enough that there was maybe a course of minutes that transpired between uh, that she would have had to have taken this poison and died. And it takes like an hour or something like that to die from a cobra bite. So people say, probably not cobra. But where would she have gotten that poison since she was under such close guard? And one theory that's emerged is, do you remember when Caesar uh, paraded uh, Arsinoe through the streets and ended up generating sympathy for her uh, unintentionally? Yes. Supposedly Octavian remembered that. And according to this theory, and didn't want to do the same thing by parading Cleopatra through the streets. So he never had any intention of doing that and instead went to her and said, look, uh, I I can kill you or you can take your own life. You seem like the kind of lady who'd want to take her own life. If you do this, we'll celebrate it, that kind of thing. And um, and that's, that's, 
why she or how she got the poison because she was kind of allowed to to be given that option. That's just a theory, um, but no one knows. All we know is that Cleopatra almost certainly did take her own life, most likely through poison of some sort. That's right. So she uh, was buried next to Mark Antony, um, which was according to her wishes, of course. And, um, you know, because we don't have writings from Egyptians, uh, it's mainly, like we said, from the Roman perspective, she's viewed through different lenses. Um, Some people have portrayed her, like we said earlier, as super capable and dynamic and super smart. And other people have portrayed her as just like leaning on her wiles as a woman and being more cunning than strategic. Um, I think, you know, Somewhere in the middle is probably the truth. She probably did what she had to do on certain occasions. But that certainly doesn't mean she also wasn't like a brilliant leader on her own terms. Right. And this article actually points out it's pretty ironic that were it not for the propagandists who were working for Octavian, who were trying to basically disassemble any good memory of her and paint her as a terrible person who almost brought down Rome, were it not for Octavian to save Rome itself, um, she would have. Were were it not for those biographers, she may have been lost to history. Like, there's a lot of pharaohs in Egypt's history that we just don't know anything about. And she could have ended up being one of them, even though she was a successful pharaoh for Egypt. We we may never have known about her were it not for these guys like Lucan and um, Plutarch who wrote about her and, and commemorated her and memorialized her. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I don't think there's any disputing the fact that she was, um, at the very least, one of the more charming uh, and intelligent uh, rulers of the time. Uh, she just had sort of a way about her yeah. from all the readings where, like, you couldn't help but be captivated by her when you're in her presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, her speaking voice has always been written about. Um, and I think she just she had that, that just certain indefinable quality. Um, there's been a lot of debate on her looks over the years, but to <laughs> me that's— I don't even know why people still talk about that stuff. It's funny because people do, and both men and women do. Like whenever somebody like shows a picture of what she probably looked like in real life based on like like a coin came out in, or came to light in 2007, and people are like, whoa, she's not pretty. Uh, how, how could she possibly have, have, you know, achieved all this if she wasn't pretty? Uh, there's just a bunch wrong with that, but there, this this one historian um, put it really, really well. The impact she made on the ancient world is overlooked because the world has this obsession when it comes to women. People can only judge them on whether they were beautiful. Nobody ever said, Mark Antony, how handsome was he? And that's really just, uh, that just really drives the point home really well, I think, that that people are obsessed with this idea of that she was beautiful and it really does undermine like whatever she was capable of. And when people think like that, you're just carrying on a 2000 year old tradition that began in, in Rome around the time of Octavian. I'm not going to talk about it. So, um, you, you asked about Octavian becoming Augustus, right? Uh, no, I didn't ask. I was just, uh, yes. You were setting me up for it. Tell that story. I want to tell the story. You don't mind? I don't. So, uh, Cleopatra killed herself on August 12th of 30 BCE, and Octavian decided to commemorate this extraordinary triumph over Cleopatra in Egypt and over Mark Antony and his ascension to full ruler of Rome by taking the name Augustus. 
So when we're marking the month of August, the eighth month of the year, we're actually commemorating the defeat and the death of Cleopatra. Amazing. It is amazing. You knew that all along, huh? All I know is that we have four live shows in August to commemorate (laughs) this event. Where would you get tickets if you were going to go, Chuck? SYSK Live. If you lived in one particular city that you had to pick to go get tickets, as many people as possible, what would that city be? Poor Chicago and Portland, Maine. Okay, great. (laughs) Well, you heard Chuck, everybody. Do it for Cleopatra. She wills it. That's right. Uh, If you want to know more about Cleopatra, just go start reading up. There's apparently a whole slate of really good biographies that have come out recently, so you got plenty of stuff to work with. Uh, And since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail. Hey, guys. want to reach out and let you know that my uh, stepson loves listening to your show. Um, We share custody with my husband's ex-wife, and not to go into those complicated details, but to be able to spend time, um, spend as much time as I possibly can with him, I drive him to school and pick him up from school. can take anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zach is ADHD and on an IEP, and the typical school environment can be challenging for him. Uh, he's worked really hard this year building skills and has come quite a long way in the fourth grade. Way to but, go, Zach. Yeah, man. But when we find an alternative uh, way to foster this love of learning that he enjoys, we really embrace it. Uh, He really loves listening to Stuff You Should Know during the long car rides. Way to go, Zach, again. He is a super smart kiddo and is especially engaged in the topics you guys cover. Uh, His latest favorite was uh, tinnish cases of really bad luck. (laughs) So his dad and I strive to model our values. One of great uh, great importance is that time together and experiences trump material goods. Uh, With his 10-year milestone birthday approaching, I've been thinking about this quite a bit, and I thought maybe, just maybe, Josh and Chuck could give him a shout-out. Oh, wow. It would be the highlight of his decade and a killer birthday present from a killer stepmom to her beloved kiddo. That is from Mandy. So, Zach, buddy, the happiest, happiest of birthdays to you as you turn 10. That is a very big deal because you are a double-digit human being now. Yeah. And it sounds like you are doing great and sailing toward your teenage years with... uh, with confidence and intelligence. Yep. Congratulations on your big one Zach. It's a big one. Yes, it is. Happy birthday. Um, wow. That was a nice one, Chuck. Well done. Thanks. If you want to get in touch with us like Mandy did, that's pretty rare that we do that kind of thing, but you never know. I guess you could take a shot, right? Yes. Okay. Um, you can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and check out our social links. Uh, that's probably not going to help much. So if you really want to get something like this done, you should write us an email. You can wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. (laughs) 